Okay, so uh, this is one where I'm trying to make fetch happen. You know what I mean by that? You've seen Mean Girls? You'll, ex- you'll understand in a second, but in this episode, I'm trying to make fetch happen. And it's going to happen. So what I mean by the fetch thing is um, I started calling the UK, or more specifically England, because I think that Scotland acts differently, and I don't know if how Northern Ireland acts about these things. But So England, but whatever. But if I say Ireland, I guess I'm talking about Great Britain. I don't care. The point is, there is a phenomenon that I have found, and, I, and I, I, if I were officially an academic in terms of my job and not just something I do for fun, uh, this might be something I really want to research. But there is a phenomenon in racism where different groups of white people seem to think that the only racism is MAGA Republican stuff. Right? And there's the fact that also in a lot of these countries there, there aren't a lot of black people and people also think of racism as being white and black uh, because people don't have the nuance to understand that anti-blackness is a form of racism but it is not the entirety of it. These people are not in places where anti-Asian hate crimes are happening fairly frequently um, and also, the United States news is so sensationalist, um, so sen- sensationalist uh, that the worst stuff is on it all the time. And I know that we're talking, I mean, like, obviously, you know, mass shootings is a huge problem, but they're mostly not racist. Some of them are, but that, that's a... That's a whole different set of problems, but that's what you see on the news. And if you live in a different country, you're like, oh my God, my country's better than that. And in a lot of ways, other countries are better than us, but then in a lot of ways, they're worse than us. Because I will tell you, the turf movement is a British thing, right? For those who don't know, and who listens to my show who wouldn't know, right? The trans-exclusionary radical feminist, right? Uh, the J.K. Rowling thing is a British thing. The royalist thing is a British thing, Right? And you could do this for all the other aspects of the Commonwealth, right? You could do that in Australia. They're not really as royal, but they uh, they certainly have a lot of racism there. Let me tell you, I know some Australians, and there have been some racism coming out of their mouths. Uh, and you get it in Canada because they're so close to us, and because they have, like, universal health care and stuff, they look down on us. And for some reasons, they should. But in other ways, do they think that they were not genocidal? Like, do they think that they ended up in Canada just because— Right. I noticed it because a couple of things happened in 2021 and two. There were all of the mass graves revealed, which is only a shock to white people for the indigenous. Right. And then, of course, there was the ridiculous trucker thing in Ottawa. And people were like, I'm sure Canadians laughed at us and our anti-vaxxers. But they have them, too. (laughs) And if you look at the U.K., you know, Eric Clapton going on rants about lockdowns. That's not an American. 
You know, I'm not trying to say that this is not a defense of the United States. Come on now. The point I'm always trying to make is that the borders don't actually contain the, the hatred and the bigotry and the oppression. The borders are made up and the borders are a part of the oppression, right? The fact that people's citizenry and, and personhood depends on the piece of paper, right? That's part of the problem. But when people say, well, I'm safe from these things where I live, well, that's a big deal. So I have Anna Meyer on here. We're going to talk about her life in the UK, and we're going to talk about what I'm calling Turf Royalist Island. Enjoy! Okay, so uh, I am here with Anna Meyer, and we're going to talk about the United Kingdom. <laughs> in general. Uh, more specifically, we're going to talk, you know, about, she's in UK and we can talk about that, but just this general idea that uh, racism is an American problem only. And uh, how that's just not true. And with her perspective, having lived in different places and living in a different one. And I, I've seen how the Brits have been since 2020, uh, but I am not experiencing it. So I'm going to get her perspective on that and we'll keep talking. But thank you for being here. Ed. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. It'll be depressing, but here we are. <laughs> so before we get into all that, can you tell the folks a little bit about, you know, what you do, research and yeah. all that stuff, and then we'll just keep going. All right. So, um, Hello, all listeners. Um, I'm Anna. I am from the U.S. I grew up in the U.S. I did all my academic training in the U.S., but I work in the U.K. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of politics at the University of Nottingham. Nottingham is basically the Midwest of England, if that's a helpful heuristic. Um, I work broadly on institutional responses to white supremacist violence. So thinking about institutional racism, structural white supremacy, how these things shape Broadly, national security institutions, but of course, there are broader implications that are linked up with all sorts of ideas um, surrounding coloniality and race and how those things are constructed, mostly in the U.S. and Germany. But now that I live in the U.K., I'm also thinking about it and witnessing it here. Yeah, coloniality is a good good starting point for the discussion because I'm not sure what it is about – I mean – I think, and you tell me if you agree with this, perhaps a big part of the misconception is the fact that the slave trade, broadly speaking, and not in 100%, but wasn't really on the UK shores. Like mm-hmm. they didn't bring nearly as many to the UK. And mm-hmm. so it was, was much easier for people who didn't agree with it, but didn't have to agitate to stop it, to just not think about it, because they weren't there. They were in many, many places that the UK owned, but not as much on the island. And so ever since, you know, what, the 19th century, it's been pretty easy to pretend that these, like, slavery and then the descendants of it, right, both in terms of ideologies and the humans, uh, were elsewhere, yeah. Um, and there's also just not as many black people there as there are in some other places for similar reasons. And so it makes it a little easier to look at it from a distance, both literally and ideologically, except for the fact that if you think about it with any real nuance, you realize that none of us would be over here if it hadn't been for them doing that. <laughs> so 
I mean, so, so true. So true. I think you're exactly right to think about this as an issue of geography and distance. So both in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, also all the other terrible imperial things that the UK did, the vast majority of those things occurred not in the UK. Of course, there are ramifications and things are happening now, but the worst parts of empire happened elsewhere. And so unlike in the US where slavery happened physically where people were still living, it was not a faraway problem. It was right here. That was simply not the case for the UK. So it was very easy, like you said, to ignore it, to view it as something that we sort of do over there. Um, we're sort of going to hide the violence away and we're not going to really think about it personally. People in the UK also like to point out that the UK technically abolished their role in the transatlantic slave trade before the US did. Um, so early 1800s. And I know that that is an entirely insufficient <laughs> explanation. And there are largely economic and not racial reasons for why that was done. Um, it had nothing to do with the UK coming around and being like, today we have all become abolitionists. That is not that is not what happened. Um, but they do like to trot out that fact. So part distance, part the, the fact of history that it was abolished before the U.S. did. Um, but also, like, not because we decided racism existed. Yeah. It also, like, it was before. It wasn't that much before. It wasn't, no. like, 600 years before, right? No. There were certain, there were people that was within one person's lifetime, you know? Yeah, they abolished it, what was it, 1807 or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we abolished it in, like, 1865 and so, or three, I guess. Um you know, there were people who were born in 1805 and were still alive, who were alive for both of them. So it's just like, yeah, it was before, but like a lot of it, as you say, is economic, which obviously a lot of slavery and capitalism and all these things put together, right? But like, it's really because, and I, I guess I don't know as much as you, obviously, but they weren't making nearly as much money directly off of it as the U.S. was. So for the U.S., the Southern states... For all of their racial hatred and all that, yes, but also it's because they needed us uh, a lot more to function. And yeah, so and and like the entanglement of slavery in the U.S. and British imperial practices, which is not something that people in Britain talk about, or I think even the average person nowadays knows about. Those entanglements are so deep. After the abolishment of slavery in the U.S. and there was need to or perceived need to continue the cotton industry. And so what happened, um, Indian workers from the country of India, <laughs> um, colonized at the time by Britain, were in some cases imported into the Caribbean, into the South to work as laborers, indentured laborers. But the degree to which they had any choice in that matter is questionable. Um it, the Indian cotton industry took off after this as well. And that was not an industry in which laborers were treated well. Um, there was an enormous amount of anti-Indian racism involved in that. And so this idea that Britain, having abolished its slave trade in the Caribbean, had suddenly become this post-racial kind of place, um, clearly not the case, even within still the case of U.S. slavery and its and the implications of that abolition. So, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... You know, colonialism feels like an academic concept unless you're experiencing it, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it's for people 
people think of colonialism as this thing that's in the past and aspects of it are in the past because certain things have changed. Just not, I don't even mean for better. I just mean like technology and certain things have changed where they're not doing exactly the same thing that they used to be. Again, not because they improved morally, but because they make, they make money in different ways now. But like, if you were an Indian person living under it, was a real thing that happened to you and your family. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And, and like, like you were saying earlier about the abolition of slavery in Britain and the U.S. happening within one person's lifetime. I mean, there are still many people alive who lived under the British rush, and not to mention places that Britain colonized in Africa itself. Like, that is a real lived experience for people who are still alive. And of course, has traumatic intergenerational effects for their children and grandchildren and so on. So it is very much a real thing for people who went through it, who are still with us. Right. And, you know, I remember talking about in my book, I mentioned very briefly, you know, language planning as like a policy thing and, you know, talking and I'm citing an article by Carol Eastman from like 1990 when like a uh, formal apartheid was ending in South Africa. And she's, this is not her fault. She's describing something and she's talking about, um, how they gave people a choice, like, would you like the, you know, do you think that we should have instruction in Afrikaans or should we have it in English? And it was just like, uh, okay, so which colonial language do you want imposed on you, right? Uh, and, and, and so, and then we, we gave them a choice and they like chose English and it's like, okay, I'm not sure how much of a choice that was. Um, and you know, we can see as we are because we met through Twitter, uh, how recent it is for people to make a whole bunch of money from South African horror and then just pretend that they actually earned it themselves. So, like, although that's not always the same thing as England because it could be Dutch or whatever, you know, whatever. But the point is, like, this idea that any country in Europe, I mean, there's a couple of exceptions because they were themselves colonized by the European countries, but, like, uh, have their hands clean is is just, it's it's absurd. I think, for better or worse, in the United States, and especially of late, and I don't just mean what they're yelling about with CRT, but I mean before that, like, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to pretend that these things didn't happen. You can downplay their significance, but, like, even the Republicans know these things happened, <laughs> right? Like, they, they just can't yeah. they can't say it didn't happen. They like to pretend, well, it wasn't that bad, but they don't say the slaves didn't exist. Right. right, exactly. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a story. So I have a black colleague here, and he was telling me about, this was pre-pandemic, when his parents visited Washington, D.C., and they went to the National Museum of African American History, and they were just shocked that this museum existed and were deeply impressed and moved by it. And initially, I was having difficulty understanding their reaction because the museum is quite impressive. Um, it's pretty well done for a state-sponsored museum about very dark parts of U.S. history. Um, but it's also not reparations. It's not like deeper structural change. And so like it, it's a nice thing, but it's not any evidence, I think, that the U.S. is taking racism deeply seriously. Um, but as I talked to him more about this and thought more about it, I think like imagining Britain putting a museum about colonialism anywhere in the country, um, much less in the capital, in a place position of prominence that is at all critical of British history of colonialism is just unthinkable over here. I cannot imagine, well, obviously not the Tory government, but even a Labour government doing that. It's the country is not there 
in the national conversation, which is deeply pathetic. <laughs> but like it, you're absolutely right. At least we are having some conversations in the U.S. They're far from perfect and there's little institutional change. But like you said, we no one is denying that slavery happened. Um, very few people are denying that it was bad. <laughs> so, Right. Like they'll downplay how bad. Right. Yes. But it's not like the debate is not was slavery good or bad, right? Yeah. It's it's like, you know, people being stubborn because they don't want to feel like they were complicit, blah, 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 blah. Which is like, although it's annoying, like, it's at least understandable not to want to be complicit in that. Like, I get it. I don't want to be complicit in it, and, and I'm not. But for people, like, I don't, I wouldn't want to have been complicit in something like that. But they <laughs> also know that the that is there, right? There's obviously many forms of denialism in the world, and we don't go into all of that. But there's no, like, slavery denialism. That's not really a movement. Right. No. The movement is more the severity, the extre- extremity and so forth. Right. The revisionism of what it was like. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you can talk to the people who were in these places and say, like, sure, maybe they would have had a better time in the UK in 1907 versus being in some towns in the southern United States or whatever. I can't really speak to that, what the experience would be like in either place, just because I wasn't there and how it would feel. But like. I will tell you, I, uh, from my experiences just traveling, and look, I haven't lived in all these places, but from places I've been, like, in the United States, there are certainly places where I feel like I'm, like, I, I need to, like, keep my shit together, uh, but no one's surprised to see a black person. True. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And now surprise is not always hostile, because, like, when, I've been places in Asia where they've never seen a black person, but they're always very friendly. They were just like, what, what is that? <laughs> uh, but like I never felt like I was in danger right mm-hmm. whereas there's just this I don't know man they just this is not to be critical of this group of people but I'm saying like you go to Europe and it's just this idea that you're just this like illiterate migrant person when when you know and I used to, I've been to Europe but I haven't been in a long time and I don't feel much of a reason to go back because like <laughs> This idea that all my friends in college are like, I'm going, I'm going to study abroad in Italy and study abroad in France. And I'm just like, I've done that. I did that in high school. I went to France and like, of course, I'm the only black guy on the, the tour, right? You know, and I'm telling people my experiences. They're like, oh yeah, but it's fine. Like, I didn't have any, I didn't experience that. I'm like, of course you didn't experience that. Right. And it was really frustrating, you know, this idealization of Europe. The United States does it, like liberals in the United States do that. And it's, that's what's really annoying about it. And that's why uh-huh. I, no one's listening to my show who's like super conservative. There's no one listening to my show. There's only a couple hundred people listening to my show and they're all like me or farther left or anything like that. But there's things that people don't understand is that like so much of the ideological nonsense that we live under is European. Oh, yeah, know? completely. Um, there's a scholar I really like. Um, her name's Olivia Rutazibwa and she's at the London School of Economics. And the way that she thinks about why the European racist construction is so strong and and yet we tend to ignore it and think that, at least in the U.S., that Europe is for some reason more progressive than, than the U.S. Um, she calls it the Hitlerian connotation. And so she links this back to the Nazi period. And because of the direct experience that every European country had with the Nazis, that has been sort of constructed as the pinnacle of racism. This is what racism means. And so... If you call anything that is less severe than that racism, that is taken to be almost insulting 
to victims of the Holocaust. And of course, that is not how it is meant. Racism is a system and takes many forms and affects people in any number of ways. But by exceptionalizing it to this one historical moment, by making being racist equivalent with being Hitler, you really strangle the ability to talk about it um, because you're immediately calling somebody a Nazi or that's how it's viewed anyway. Um, if you call them a racist, even if they are doing something that is racist, it really, really skews the view of what racism possibly is. And it really stifles conversations because how dare you call me a Nazi? Um, how dare you liken this to Nazi Germany? That's not what we're doing. <laughs> there's, there's so many other things happening here. Yeah, this this happens in the States, but it's different, right? It's the same yeah. idea because, you know, the people who say that, you know, unless you're literally being lynched, that it's not racism. But then, like, every time you see another one of those videos, it's like, well, I don't really think it's stopped. You know, um, nope. so so like, first of all, hasn't stopped. Second of all, you can bring something up without trying to say this is the most extreme version of it. What I right, exactly. always found frustrating in my life. And then part of the reason I ended up writing about all this stuff, because I wasn't really planning to do this. And I said this a lot on my show is that like my goal in my scholarship originally was not this. Right. It mm-hmm. just kept coming up. And I was just like, I'm just over here trying to do this stuff and it keeps coming up. I, I, I'm wasting my time because I might as well address it. You know, I might as well face it and try to talk about it and do something about it. But my goal is not to document the horrors per se, because first of all, a lot of people are doing that. Second of all, if you need that to do something, like, I don't know how much you're really going to do. Um, I'm not saying that there has never been anyone who's been pushed into action when horrible things have happened. Obviously, there each time another one happens, you get probably get a couple hundred more people who actually take action, right? And I'm I'm not saying it's good, but if if things are going to happen, I hope some people do some stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But you do get those people, and that's what the sort of color evasive stuff from post sixties until even a couple of years ago, was just like, well, we just don't want to talk about it and everybody's equal or whatever. And like all the people I interviewed for my dissertation and a lot of the people who took my classes, again, these are progressive white people who were told everyone's equal, everyone's the same, treat everybody the same, which is not in a vacuum a bad message, but it's very Captain Planet. You know, like we have one from here and one from here and we're all friends. Uh, and then when things happen, it's like, and here was a bad actor who did a bad thing. And we, you know, whether, and not even just like police stuff, but just like an individual person or whatever, right? Uh, you know, I think it's that there are bright lines where we understand, like, oh, can't do that. Like, you, see, you know, certain things where people say, it's like, oh, you're just going to get fired. And even Republicans are like, you got to get out of here. You can't be doing that. <laughs> because the, mostly because it's bad for business. Right. Yeah. You know, like there was that guy who was um this is a baseball thing, but he was the president of the Seattle Mariners. And in during I can't believe it was early 2020, or early 2021, like he was on Zoom. So it was during the pandemic, but I can't during early parts of the pandemic, but I can't remember if it was 2021. But anyway, he was talking about the prospects in his in his system. He was just talking about how, like, they didn't speak enough English and stuff like that. And it's like, sir. <laughs> and he got fired immediately. So, like, I'm not saying that, you know, dealing with racism is better because then the institutional thing is an individual thing. But. It is true that you will get in much more individual trouble here for doing some stuff, right? Like, you do some stuff like that as an individual, no one's going to stand up for you, right? The kids, there's all these kids who make, like, racist TikToks. You're not going to college now. Like, it happens. Yeah, yeah. And I I think 
the and obviously there are people, plenty of people in the U.S. who don't understand the difference between individual racist acts and structural racism. But I think for whatever reason, that lack of understanding that is so much stronger here. Um, about two months into my job here, so this would have been 2021, late 2021, um, I was in a meeting in my department to talk about decolonizing the curriculum, which is our version of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is a buzzword used in exactly the same way to mean exactly the same level of change, which is really none. But that's, that's, that's what that is. Um, and the number of people in the room who would probably have personally identified as liberal, left, progressive, whatever. Um, this was a meeting of entirely white people, by the way. And he said, well, I don't feel comfortable when we're talking about whiteness being bad because like, I'm not bad or my students aren't bad, but that's not what it means. It's not what it means. And it was like talking to a brick wall. You could not get past that. And that's happening in education at the same time as, um, so there was a commission at the government level, at the national level, um, uh, called, it's called the Sewell Commission because the guy who ran it, um, his last name is Sewell. Um, and they put out a report about Racism in the UK. It was supposed to be this landmark case. You remember this? Yeah. Um, and the Soul Commission declared that structural racism was not a thing in the UK anymore. And they acknowledged that individual racist incidents did still happen. Individual people still experienced racism sometimes, but there were many individualized reasons for that. Um, and they went through the whole gamut of arguments that everyone has heard before about um if people just worked harder or if they pushed themselves more in school or broken homes and, and all, and all of those same narratives. And, but unlike that being something that your racist uncle says to you in the U S this is an official government report of a commission chaired by a black man. And it was just like the fact that that was the government's official position is just like, come on. (laughs) Did, Did we not live through the same sort of, uprisings around George Floyd? Did we not have the same conversation about Black Lives Matter? And I mean, no, not exactly because different countries, but those same sorts of issues and protests did happen over here, but not with the same resonance. You know, it's funny about the police thing because we wouldn't have American policing if it wasn't for London. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, so the formalization, like obviously the whole slave patrols and all that was a big part of it, but like we wouldn't have the formalized version of city police if it wasn't for the lessons we learned from the London police, because that was, I believe, the first Metropolitan Police Department, that which was true. formed by a guy who had spent his career beating up the Irish. And yep. so after coming back from that, or they hired him because he was really good at beating up the Irish, they were like, we need you to control things here, because that's really what it is. So it's like the formalization, like the ire, the anger, the the let's hunt down the black people thing. I think we did a lot of that ourselves. But <laughs> the, the the bringing in the formalization is is a European thing, which to me is really tied into the issues we're talking about because this is the idea that it's this genteel place where you know these systems don't happen. And frankly, I think there are people who who are here who would th- who if they learned this would be like, well, that's that's the good part because you know we were doing the certain types of racism here, and now they made the the, the things more more professional right but i'm like to me at least in 2023 the quote-unquote professional racism is is really the thing to fight you know um i'm not saying you don't fight the other kinds but like most of that i don't know if you fight that you just run away but like the the professional racism the stuff 
All I know is I don't think that my job would be able to exist over there, right? What I, that I mean is I work for a nonprofit where my, the specific team we work on is trying to support housing developers of color and train them up so that mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, they're basically trying to fight gentrification was the idea, right? Now we can have a whole conversation. Should people even be owning like whatever, whatever. But like within the realm that we're in, Yes. And it's an explicit focus on racial justice. Do we always succeed? No, but that's the point. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things on racial justice in the UK, but the fact that this is something that we can fundraise for and it's like an understandable thing and we get money from banks and all that. And again, we can talk about is it good to get money from banks or whatever, but who cares? The point is, this is something that like the big companies are like, oh, we got to put money behind this. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, Um, because it therefore acknowledges their complicity by them saying we need to, if they didn't think they were, if they didn't have some idea that they were seen as complicit, because it's all optics, but I'll take the money for the optics, right? <laughs> if, if they didn't have a sense that they were seen as complicit, then they wouldn't feel the pressure to do these things. They're not doing this out of the goodness of, goodness of their heart, right? Right, um, right? So, because like, when I think about that, when I talk to people in the UK, if it, you know, I just had a, a chapter published that mentions decolonizing the curriculum as a, um, a merit badge. Yeah. Uh, I talk about the checklists and merit badges in that chapter. I wrote this in 2020, which is funny, but it took until 2023 to come out because academia is like academia. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so I look at it I'm like, man, man, this, I would not have written this like this now, man, man. But anyway, that's not a UK problem. The point is. The decolonized curriculum thing is specifically one of the two quote unquote merit badges. I talk, I talk about anti-racism and talk about decolonizing curriculum. These are not bad things to do, but people, especially white people, are so quick to say that they have succeeded at these things without anyone else verifying it. It's like my point is that you can't just say I am an anti-racist. Like you, you do anti-racism. You don't be anti-racism, right? Yeah, because you can try to challenge it and it's ongoing or whatever. And 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 honestly, I find it very rewarding to challenge these things. It's frustrating, but like it does feel rewarding to 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 just be in it. If you the very very and when I talk about the professionalization, the formalization of stuff, the the desire to be at an endpoint is part of the problem. My curriculum is decolonized, and I'm like, within what system? Right. That's which is a question that I always want to ask people when we have these decolonization meetings and we don't start there because it would be another two hour meeting is what do you mean by that? What does decolonization actually mean to you? Um, And Sarah Ahmed, who's this amazing uh, feminist, you know, you know her. Um, She she calls this like EDI, um, equality, diversity and inclusion by documentation. Um, And so the point is to create documents. So if somebody says, well, this institution is racist, you can point and say, no, we have an anti-racism plan. Or look at this web page that we made about decolonizing the curriculum. It's once again optics like you were getting at with companies supporting nonprofit efforts. Um, There's a little bit of recognition happening that, oh, maybe we should be doing this. But without the conversation underlying it of what is racism, what is colonialism, do these things exist? Yes. And those seem so basic, but we haven't had those conversations like the nonprofits like the one you work for and such do exist here, but they're not household names. They're not things that are going to get covered in the news. They're very small grassroots scrappy efforts and they do amazing work, but it's really difficult to find information about them or to figure out what a larger scale of work they could be doing is because they don't have support and they don't have that backing from other actors, whether that's good or bad is a different question, but like they're not as built up 
as they are in the U.S. At least that's my impression, not working in the nonprofit sector. Right. And I'm not trying to pretend that nonprofits aren't their own problem or that they're free of capitalism and racism and so forth. Because in case anyone listening wants to point that out to me. So don't do that, (laughs) listeners. Um, But also, like, the the other thing you said about people saying, I don't want to feel bad, like that, that literally has happened to me several times. Right. I gave a talk about my book in November and one woman came up to me afterwards talking about, like, I just, I really don't like to feel bad, you know, to, to use whiteness as a pejorative, you know, and like, I'm very, very explicit in the book that I'm like, I don't mean all white people. In fact, it doesn't really have all that much to do with being white. It's more about an ideology and a concept. Mm-hmm. However, what I, I was not, I didn't have the, the wherewithal at the moment because I was like talking to a lot of people to turn sure. to her and say, I'm not doing this to make you feel bad. But because you said that, I hope you feel bad. What I tell people about the discomfort thing, and, and I've had this conversation a couple of times on the show about the sort of people who weaponize that word discomfort. It's what they're doing with all the bills in the States is that they want people to feel discomfort and whatever, right? And it's like, first of all, I think we need to use a different word for that because we're conflating some someone experiencing a microaggression or something with someone being told not to do that right and that's not the same feeling no. i don't know what a better word for it would be i think that perhaps they can have discomfort <laughs> because they're talking about it so much let them have that we need a new one uh for whatever it is that we are feeling whether it's exploitation or or cruelty or all of these things because they, they happen in different ways because like okay maybe they are feeling discomfort because i'm sure right it is uncomfortable to yeah. sit with uh it's just that it's i think it's productive discomfort uh um, or it can be it can be um yeah they it's do not, something with it it's um, not harm. yeah like, it's it, nothing bad is going to happen to me because somebody pointed out this thing you did, like maybe you don't realize it, but there's some unconscious racism underlying that. And when people do that, it doesn't be a little bit uncomfortable. Absolutely. But that's not the same as a black person being called a slur or something like that. It's I, the fact that I can be just uncomfortable with that and then continue on with my day and everything is mostly fine. Like I can choose to ignore that discomfort if I want and, and do nothing with it. And that is white privilege. Basically that that's what that is. The funny thing is like that, that discomfort is really remarkable how like people, I have experienced white people staying mad about being set, not even literally you're a racist, but like what you're doing is not okay. Or even if I wasn't talking to them and they think what I'm saying is implicating them by extension and staying mad about that for years. Whereas the few times I've been called the N word, like it's not fun. And then the next day I move on because <laughs> I have to, I don't have a choice. Yeah. You know? Like oh. this one guy, a British man, he doesn't live in England, but, um, he, st- he he started saying some condescending stuff to me, which it wasn't about racism, right? He was just say- being condescending. And I said, I don't take advice from, I don't take unsolicited advice from older white men, right? Uh, and then he stayed mad for two years. <laughs> um, like, people need hobbies. Yeah. And, maybe, and maybe that is his hobby. But he needs a different hobby. Or, like, he, he does, he's not busy enough. He, right. he doesn't have enough going on in his life. That takes mental energy. My God. 
No, he like literally like every time I publish a new thing, he would show up to talk about it because he was mad. And but the, what I've noticed with the people who they don't really have much of an argument about the racism part, even though I didn't call these people racist. Usually I don't make a point of calling individuals racist all that often because I don't think it's very useful, not because of their fear, but because I care about their actions more than them as people. Right. You know, the people who like are out and out racist, like a Trump or something like I don't know him, so I'm not going to be. Like, what's the point? Right. Like, yeah. I don't care. Like, it's a problem, but I care what he's doing. Right. You know, uh, or and then, like, obviously, on a lower scale, because I'm not like talking to the president, like people who are doing racist things or enacting racist policies or whatever. Like, I'll call out those policies and whatever. I don't care too much to describe people's character as racist or not racist. We all are to some extent. So what's the point? Right. This person has a what do they, they have a 90 a, a 93 racism score? Like, I don't care. You know, this all this quantification of stuff is, is part yeah. of the problem, too. It's like we got to quantify it. You know, I say this to people, do, do you want to change the system or do you want a better racism score, right? Like, you just want to, like, lower your racism score? Then we don't need to talk because fine, you know? But, like, do you want to make things safer for not even me but for my son, right? Like, I've been through what I'm through, whatever. But, like, I'm thinking of him, you know? And that's part of the reason I ended up doing this is because I got really frustrated after he was born in 2020 and all this stuff was happening and I said I have to do this for him rather than try to do all this normal stuff and try to ignore it while I'm doing it because I think about that and we haven't even talked about the whole other part of this is that like they say this they deny the racism and whatever and they think they really do think they have the moral high ground on the United States right they really think they have the moral moral high ground on everybody but that's like all of these powerful countries, they think they have the moral high ground on other countries, which is a problem, but it's not a UK problem. Or it's not specifically a UK problem. But the moral high ground that the UK thinks it has over the United States is funny, considering that, like, there are things at which they are way worse. <laughs> so many things. So many things. I mean, speaking of grudges that are held for longer than they should be, like, people over here are so mad that we threw their tea in the harbor. And <laughs> we still got that at grudge going on and on. Like, well, we lost, we lost the U.S., but they're really bad. So we're glad to have done so. Um, which is just a, like, again, the U.K. needs to get a hobby besides not educating its students about racism and colonialism. It's just, it's funny because like they were making fun of us when Trump was running and then they elected Johnson, which is funny. Uh, <laughs> it's, obje- it's objectively funny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, and he stayed in power longer than Trump, which is funny. Like, so it's just like, uh, the, so there's that. And then, you know, whatever, I just wasn't paying attention to royal stuff. Like, I knew it was nonsense when people would get all up in arms with weddings, but that, like, you know, that's silly, but I didn't really care. Like, all right, fine. You want to care about weddings? Sure. Like people, you know, here they're just celebrity. For us, celebrity, we do celebrity wedding. You know, whatever. Fine. Yeah. But oh my god, the way people behaved after the queen died, <laughs> I was just like, what is happening? I've never. I mean, obviously, I've never seen it happen because she was queen my whole life. But like, I've never seen people act that way about a figure because, first of all, obviously. With the, it's been since Kennedy that no one, none of our presidents or leaders have died in office, right? Mm-hmm. So, anytime one of our presidents die, they've been out of office for a while. Some people are sad, but it's not that big of a deal, you know? Right. And I know president and king and queen aren't the same thing, but in terms of the figurehead, right? We only have one, right? 
which is a problem, but that's a separate problem. So I couldn't, I'll never see that sort of outpouring just because they don't tend to die in office, right? Uh, but also, like, she's not your friend. Like, even forget the colonials. Like, she's not your friend. Like, what is happening? Why do you think she's your friend? <laughs> I, I wish I had answers for you here. Um, a couple days after the Queen's death, um, I went to the bus stop to catch the bus, and someone had graffitied on the side of the bus stop, like, long live King Charles in Latin. <laughs> and just, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I'm just like, memories are occurring to me of ways that I encountered this sort of glorification of the queen before her death. Um, just the way that places of the country are so proud of that. Um, I had a friend who was doing research at Oxford and I went to visit them and we did a tour of one of the colleges. And there was this, in the entryway to this chapel, there was this janky poster that someone's nephew had made in Microsoft Paint um, that with a photo of the Queen on it. And it said, like, Queen Elizabeth visited this chapel on this day. <laughs> and, like, okay. Um, I just, I don't, I don't, I wish I had answers for you here. I, I do not understand the, the depth of feeling for that. I understand being sad generally when people die. Um, and, and somebody who has a lot of political importance and a lot of power still in this country, which is often understated and not fully understood by people in the U.S. The royal family has an enormous amount of power still, even if not always direct political power, but in terms of how the economy is structured and even how our national conversation is going. The fact that we spent so much time talking about the queen after her funeral and then the coronation of Charles and all the downstream effects of that, like they had to change all the stamps and all the money. And you had to exchange your money by a certain date. Just the way that it's so embedded in the country is, I don't know, I have a, my U.S. brain does not comprehend. I, I've never felt, I'm not a patriotic person. I've never felt more patriotic than I did after the Queen died. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I didn't know, when we talk about the money, I didn't realize how much money they had. You know, I mean, I knew they were rich, obviously, right? They live in a fucking castle. But I mean, like, I I didn't know the actual dollar amount, pound amount, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Amount. Because, first of all, I just didn't think about it. And sure. second of all, our, we obviously have very, very wealthy people in the United States. I'm not saying that the people are more wealthy in the, in the United Kingdom. What I'm saying is that, like, our leaders, who are also usually very wealthy, while they're in office, even they're doing stuff on the side or whatever, but, like, they're not raking in hundreds of millions while they're in office. They make a lot of money before, and they make a lot of money afterwards, and there's a lot of corruption and problems, and I'm not pretending we're more moral about this sort of thing. But usually, even if what they're doing is bad, they're doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> generally. Whereas things. And I don't know. I've never, they don't, I don't know what they do besides they, talk. They, they talk at things, they open, um, memorials, they go, they, some of them do charity work, um, but by charity work I mean they sponsor a charity, they themselves don't personally do anything, and yet, an enormous portion of UK taxpayers' tax dollars, including now mine, son, um, go to fund their lifestyle. Like the entire royal, I don't know the proper term for it, I'm gonna call it the royal slush fund, but basically their, their income is either generational, so, decades and centuries of owning land and property and making money off of that or is taxpayer money. And that, that is, I mean, we can, we can talk again about 
bracketing the questions about whether we should pay taxes and, and for what and, and in what capacity and how that process is decided. But like the bottom line is the majority of this country seems to be perfectly fine with continuing to fund what is ultimately a colonial imperial apparatus. Yeah, we just, it doesn't, I just never, I just didn't think that much about it because I'm over here, right? But like in, in the last few years, especially as I've met more people in the UK through my like scholarship and stuff like that, I've been more, I, st- I still don't want to pay attention to it because it just my, it boggles the mind for me. But like, you know, it's, I didn't really understand the royalist like ideology. Like, you know, when I just would see things like that, I'm like, I can't believe they think that that's normal. <laughs> but like, thinking it's normal is one thing because you just might be used to it. But like, revering it is what I just didn't understand. Like, I understand people being into the weddings because weddings can be fun, right? It's a celebration, and even if they're into the coronation, right? All that stuff, and then the birthday, it was the ninety, the jubilee, and all. I, I, I don't. That's not confusing to me. That could be anything. It's the like they deeply, deeply need something to do <laughs> because <laughs> like they, I just can't imagine that because like I, I I very deeply disagree with so many of the things that our politicians do, but it makes sense to be engaged in the laws and the policies and so on. I'm not saying you have to be, but there's many, many things going on. You know, right, it's and, you know advocate think, for local yeah. laws, state laws, the federal laws. There's so much, and I, obviously that happens in the UK too. But like, we don't just have this old person who walks around in a castle. Like, who? who why? I I don't. So, and like people who you would not clock as being like reverent or, or royalist. Um, a friend's husband I learned recently is is deeply royalist, and this is a very leftist person. And like, why are you like this? But apparently. He received like a a form letter from the queen to sometimes send like you can send her birthday cards or you could when she was alive and such. And sometimes she would quote unquote write back or one of her secretaries would like. Apparently he cried when he received this this letter, sort of but not really from the queen because it, it was an emotional moment of like meeting but not really meeting your hero. It's like Gary, you don't know her. <laughs> what, what is going on? Yeah, I think about that because like. I had a friend who just outed himself as such, too, because, like, it's one, like, I don't understand it with the queen, but I also understand how one can have warm feelings about her because of whatever reason. She's been around forever, right? And I, I, it's just part of your life. And although I don't understand the royalist stuff, like, I understand it at least a little bit more about the queen than I do about, like, fucking Prince Philip. Right? Because, like, not only do the royals not do anything, at least she was literally the queen. I never understood why anybody would like that guy. Right? It's like, because, like, he's also just, like, unpleasant. Right? Like, it's not, it's not, it's like, he's like, charming. So, like, when he died, I called him a ghoul. Because, first of all, he literally looked like one by the end. And then my friend got so mad, he was like, he's just a man who has died. And I'm like, all right, whatever. But then he said... People, he, start, he went on this rant talking about decolonizing things, right? And 
He's like, people always talk about decolonizing. It could be said that they're actually the greatest decolonizer. His argument was that the UK's lost so oh much land God. while they were in power that yeah. it's considered decolonization. And I'm like, nah, y'all are just bad at things. No, that's not. <laughs> she I just mean, lost just, a bunch of fights. <laughs> I, mean, I did talk to a couple people after the Queen died who were upset about people who were critical of the Queen. And who said that, well, she did, was not directly engaged in colonization. In fact, did you know how many countries were decolonized under her rule? And again, like different definitions of decolonization, also inaccurate in a number. Right. Of, even if your definition of colonization is just owning land, very inaccurate. Um, but I think this again goes back to what we were talking about, about personal versus institutional responsibility. And when it is the queen or the monarchy, which it's constructed as a single person who is then also an institution and is emblematic of the entire institution that this country holds very dearly as a unique part of the British experience, then that you can see how that might trickle into other parts of life, having difficulty separating individual and institution and not understanding when people are talking about institutional oppression versus individual acts of oppression. And, and those are related, but not the same thing. Yeah, we we didn't even talk about the other part of the title I was going to put about the turf stuff, but I don't really have much to say about it. It's just it's another reason that they need to shut up about their moral high ground, um, <laughs> because like they, there are clearly plenty of hateful people here about that. But for whatever reason, the argument over there seems to be this just like the royalist stuff and just like the race stuff, this weird like. No, 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 no. I don't hate them. It's just this academic professional version of why I don't like them. And it's just like, wait a second now. Right? It's just like, hold on now. <laughs> uh, because, like, obviously there's tons of horrible stuff going on here, and I'm not saying it's better. I am saying, however, their belief that their version of it, because they're doing it in a, I don't know, British way, is better than the way we do it, is just like, and I'm not saying the UK's worse in all ways. I'm saying that y'all are just the same. They just think that they're better. I, the only way I think the UK is worse is that they're delusional about the fact that they're not better. Like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the longer I live here, the more similarities I notice. The more I realize this is the exact same country with some different variations and specific names for things and obviously different histories in particular ways, but built of the same white supremacist cloth. And that's going to have similar, if not identical, consequences down the line. It it really does. Um, so, yeah, I, that's a long way of saying absolutely agreed on all of that. It's I mean, it just reminds me of academics in general, right, where – Academics, for whatever reason, and I think it's uh, it's sold to us uh, as like a romantic career, you know, this mm -hmm. ideal, like, oh, I'm going to be in my tweed jacket kind of thing, right? And we think it's sort of an inherently progressive thing because we're like the life of the mind or whatever it is, you know, we're not, um, we're not doing corporate things, which like, let's ignore the fact that all these places are institutional, whatever, whatever. But even if they weren't getting money from these things, right? Even if that academics have been upholding this bullshit in all of the journals and all of the books for hundreds of years. In fact, as much as conservative people would like to pretend that they don't like academia, they base their arguments 
on academic shit, even if they, it's, it's like, I said this a lot, it's like the Meryl Streep speech in The Devil Wears Prada, right, with the Cerulean <laughs> and all that. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> how do you think that you felt that you had justification for this nonsense? All these people are going to say is all the, the liberal academics and blah, 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 blah. But then when they want to make an argument about being a turf or something, they're going to cite something that some academic wrote. Uh, or they're going to cite a summary of it because they don't actually want to use the actual thing. And they're not making it up. Academics have published some terrible shit. We, we, yeah. we as a, as a field, which I'm not actually an academic by, 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 uh, profession these days, but like, we would, you know, they put this stuff in the literature on purpose and it passes muster because it meets the form. You know, it, 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 it meets the structure of an argument, even if what they're saying is important. They're like, well, you know, he's got uh, this many samples and, uh, you know, we got this many, you know, and it fits the, but like this, this, it's, it's, I don't think academia is immoral. I think it's just like a corporation is amoral, which is to say that it's like, it, it's not good or bad. It just, it, it follows its path. And mm-hmm. individual academics can be moral, but as a system, it's no more moral or less moral than corporations in that sense. And, we have to put actual concerted explicit effort into challenge these things because it is not naturally going to happen that an academic publication or an academic idea is going to be good or possible. Even for us, the things we're going to put out there, we're going to be wrong soon too. Oh right? yeah. That, that's part, that's part of the process. And I think, while I agree with you completely that academia, just like corporations or like other institutions is just an institution and, and we still have the tendency to put it up on the pillar as like, this is a noble career. This is a calling. It's not a job. It's a vocation. It's like a, a life path. Um, this is a dream of people. Uh, and setting aside the obvious capitalist logics that play there that, that are harmful. That also belies where we think like nobility and higher callings lie. If we think about, especially institutions like Oxford and Cambridge, which have existed for centuries before the height of the British Empire, but continued to exist largely to train the architects of empire overseas. Like that was what those institutions were for during the height of empire. And to just say that actually academia is like somewhere beyond that. And we can talk about like academic searching for objective truths and, and, and scientific ways of bettering society. It's like academic institutions have historically always existed to uphold status quo. That's what they're for. They're to institutionalize that, to train the children of the elite to continue to do that. And even though they're now training a larger portion of society, this is true in the UK and the US, they're still existing within that tradition, uh, like you were saying, exactly, of pushing these elite ideas and elite structures forward. Um, you know, they, they, they both train and credentialize these people, yeah. right? And I wonder, like, you know, I went to an Ivy and my degree, which trained me in some ways, mostly in the sense that they gave me a lot of work and I did it. And frankly, it does help me because I get a lot of stuff done. Like, I, I do think that was the main value of how hard that school was, is that, like, I meet deadlines, <laughs> uh, which I'm not blaming anyone for not doing. But I just know, like, I just know, like, I'm going to get kicked out of school if I don't get this done. So I better get it done. And I did. Uh, but how many of me, just with my relative amount of power, does it take to counteract the fact that my classmate was Betsy DeVos's daughter? So, <laughs> you know, how many of me does it take to equal, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, I just mean in the sense that I'm trying to do these things, how many of me does it take to 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 outweigh 
you know, one of the people who already has so much power that they're just getting a checkbox to say, oh, they graduated from Princeton and so forth. I want to talk about this all day, but I do have to do my actual job. So, you know, (laughs) this is fun. It's just, uh, it's, I could talk about this a lot because I get really, it's hard to make this argument in public because you'll get really surface people who think that I'm actually defending the United States. Like I'm right, not. Right. And like, like no, not. that's not, not what we're saying. Like both are bad. <laughs> it's not a you question just, of one being it's better just, than the other. What I say to people is it, it's what Bong Joon Ho said when he was giving on the press tour for Parasite. He said, "We all live in one country." <laughs> you know? Uh, and the country is, he said capitalism, it's capitalism, it's racism, it's, it's all one place. The, old, the borders are imaginary. I mean, yeah, I know the ocean is real, but I mean, like, the idea that we are truly all that separate is, is, is a fallacy, and it's even less of a, of a true statement now with the internet and everything that like, we're, we're all in one country now. The things that happen here affect the things that happen there and the things that happen there affect it. That was always true, which we go back to the discussion we had about the police, right? That affected us. But this idea that like, oh, well, the UK doesn't own this country anymore. So we don't have anything to do with them. And it's like, yeah, but we do speak English. So it's like, you can't say that we don't have any connection to their, um, and yeah, that's why, um, like my books, which are about whiteness and language teaching are published by a, like a British publisher, <laughs> you know, like this is very tied together, there you, go. you know, and I actually get some of the best and worst responses from British people. That guy following me around was British, but the, some of the people who've been the most supportive of me have been British because some people do seem to understand like, yo, we really did this shit. And on the other hand, you know, there was this woman who someone I know called out for putting out, uh, not again, not hateful stuff, but like modeling how people should speak English. But it's like, look, you're like a thin blonde British lady who sounds a certain way, right? So me doesn't mean don't teach English, but it's like maybe think be, be thoughtful about the way you're describing yourself. And she listened to us, and we had like a long conversation. And she really, she was like, yeah, I'm gonna take a pause and whatever. And then she went right back doing the same thing because it makes more money. So you know. And there we are, yeah. capitalism. All right, Anna. So thank you for joining me this thank morning. Um, I hope people listen and enjoy this and that the British people don't get too mad, you know, but yeah, that's okay. 